Let me pray before we look at these passages. God, we come to speak of the most tender part of our anatomies and very significantly also the most tender part of our souls. This is holy ground on which we walk, but it is also tender ground. Many in the sound of my voice uh, are hurt uh, by the things we're going to talk about today and have been hurt and are still hurting. Many of us are longing. And so, Lord, we look to you as the creator of sex, the giver of sex, the one who uh, sets the agenda for sex. Would you be with us wherever we come from in our sexual lives? Would you come and be with us now? And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. We are in the midst of a sermon series on the Ten Commandments entitled How to Learning to Live by Grace. Uh, This series came about because in the fall we did an extended sermon series on Amazing Grace. And we said that Amazing Grace is unconditional acceptance of undeserving persons by an unobligated God. And that that grace changes people. And coming out of that series, I prayed about it and thought about it. I wanted something tangible. How to live grace out. Because if we just have a theoretical understanding of the gospel, if it does not have any truck in our actual lives, it's actually worthless. If we don't understand how grace is how we actually live things out in our actual day-to-day life. And so as I was thinking about how, and I said this last week, but I was thinking about how do we talk about the tangible aspects of learning to live by grace, I knew that I wanted to talk about relationships like we did last week, honor your father and mother. I knew I needed to talk about money, how we think about it. I knew I needed to talk about work and rest, and I knew I needed to talk about sex. And I thought, where in the scriptures do you find all of those? Answer, the Ten Commandments. So we are spending actually two weeks on rest and work, which was two and three weeks ago. Last week we looked at relationships, honor your father and mother. This week and two weeks from now, so this week and then March 12th, we will spend on sex. And then we'll spend a couple of weeks on money. And we're spending two weeks on each of these because I believe, first of all, there are massive opportunities to experience the grace of the gospel in these particular areas. Uh, But also... As I will say a couple of times this morning, massive opportunities for us to demonstrate the beauty of God's intention when it comes to our rest, our money, and our sexual lives. Now, the world does not know what to do with sex. Uh, It's been a bit of time, 2004, I believe, that Time Magazine ran a 60-page cover article about sex. Let me quote from that article. This is Time Magazine. Of all the splendidly ridiculous, transcendently fulfilling things that humans do, it is sex that most confounds understanding. What in the world are we doing? Why in the world are we so consumed by it? The impulse to procreate may lie at the heart of sex, but bursting from our sexual center is a whole spangle of other things. Art, song, romance, obsession, rapture, sorrow, companionship, love, and even violence and criminality all playing an enormous role in everything from our physical health to our emotional health to our politics, our community, our very lifespans. Why should this be so? Did nature simply overload us in the mating department? Or is there something smarter and subtler at work? 
some larger interplay between sexuality, life, and what it means to be human. End quote. Interesting sidebar. The fact of sex, actually, if you read, the fact of sex actually stumps evolutionary biologists. Because for an organism, it is far easier and more efficient to reproduce asexually. So evolutionary biologists can't make sense of why our species or any species really has sex. Why would we evolve in this way when it's a more difficult means of propagating our species? Now when it comes to Christians and our thinking of sex, I think the record actually is a bit mixed. It's a bit mixed. Interesting, let me read from an author named Nancy Percy. says this, studies, on the one hand, studies consistently show that the happiest people sexually are married, middle-aged, conservative Christians. Uh, and then she, end quote, and then she cites several studies, which is interesting. So, but on the other hand, as the French philosopher Foucault, who wrote a six-volume history of sexuality, said, Christianity's most intolerable, burdensome legacy is seeing sex as sin. And then a pastor in Kentucky named Robert Cunningham whose sermons are actually channeling a man named Christopher West, who is actually channeling the work of Pope John Paul II and his massive uh, theology of the body. He said this when his, Robert Cunningham said this, he said when his boys were coming into their teenage years, he went out, a Presbyterian evangelical pastor, and he wanted to talk to them about sex. When he came to look at the evangelical resources, what he found were things that were fear-based, guilt-driven, shame-inducing, sex-suppressing, and unto a purity culture. And I don't know about you, but I certainly see that in our circles, and it's a problem. So what is the deal with sex? Why is it so powerful, and how are we to understand it, and not just understand it, but how are we to experience sex? My thesis this morning is that the way to understand sex is that sex points to Sex is a sign of the love of God. Sex points to and is a sign unto the love of God. And that is what explains its power and its allure. And let me say this. I've said this before, but I want to say it again. Uh, We have a massive opportunity in talking about sex, both to experience sex in its richness and its fullness, God's plan for sex, but also... To appeal to younger generations, to a watching world that is confused and hurt by the secular story of sex. I do not have time to detail the massive pain and confusion of the secular story regarding sex. But the sexual revolution has begot a hook-up culture that is numbing and destructive. Because the culture we have, this hook-up culture that exists now... He's reduced sex to a transaction, emptied it of meaning and purpose. And there is a longing for something more, and there's an opportunity for us. Let me just tell you a couple of things. Let me quote Miley Cyrus, a little older than Gen Z, but nonetheless, she says this. She says it, I'm, I'm editing her. Uh, <laughs> she says, sex is easy. You can find someone to have sex with, but we want to find someone we can talk to, to be ourselves with. And the pickings are fairly slim. You may know that pornography has gone through the roof. 
But sexual expression is actually plummeted. Fascinating, I came across this, and I actually had one of our own professors, our university professors, confirm this. A professor at Boston College named Carrie Cronin uh, had a senior seminar. And many of the seniors, a room full of seniors in college, seniors in college, and many of them, most of them probably had had hookups, many hookups. But literally, in a room full of seniors in college, 22-year-old people, not a single one of them had been on an actual date where they treated someone like a person and talked to them as something more than what their body could give to them. We live in the midst of a generation that is just broken and hurting and disappointed when it comes to sex. And there's actually really good news from the history of Christianity when it comes to this. If you look to the first century of Christianity, Christianity spread like wildfire. It's crazy how fast Christianity grew. And ultimately, of course, that was the work of God's Spirit. And obviously, there were also great preaching, and there were innovative leaders like the Apostle Paul. But what massively stuck out to first century observers of Christianity were two things. One, how the early Christians treated their money. They were radically generous with their money. And the second thing that stood out is their radical purity when it came to sexuality. Passionate, monogamous, marital sex. It stuck out to the first generation. There's a narrative out there that in the first century, Christianity came to a sexually liberated world. And that what Christianity brought to this sexually liberated world was just repression and prudery. The sad reality is the only people who were sexually liberated in the first century were wealthy, landed, powerful men. They're the only, and they could basically have sex with anyone except their wealthy friend's wife. Anybody was open to them except their wealthy friend's wife. Which, by the way, if you think about it, that kind of sounds like Harvey Weinstein, Louis C.K., Hugh Hefner. One of the most interesting books I started to read, I haven't finished it, I'll, read it, I'll finish it before uh, the next sermon, is written by a feminist liberal scholar, the title of the book is The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And she begins the book by contrasting the experiences of Marilyn Monroe and Hugh Hefner, born in the same year, and how Hugh Hefner profited from the sexual revolution, and Marilyn Monroe was undone by it. Actually, the very first Playboy, it was a picture of Marilyn Monroe nude that she was never compensated for. Literally, she almost killed herself, probably did kill herself because of what happened to her. And yet, Hugh Hefner lived the life he did. That's the sad reality of the first century. The greater reality, that into that world of sexual brokenness, Christianity brought the beauty of Christian marriage. And it brought the beauty of Christian marriage, monogamous, passionate love, to a sexually exhausted culture. And Christianity particularly brought sexual healing and sexual flourishing to women who were just objects in the Roman world. So friends, I believe that our view of the human body, our view of sex, dare I say our experience of sex, can and should be attractive to a watching world. Let me say it this way. I think sex should be evangelistic. I think it should be one of the places we start when we talk to people about the good news of Christianity is our view of sex. As Madame Langle says this, she reminds us we draw people to Christ by drawing them to a light so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know its source. See, the Christian witness cannot be in word alone. It must be in deed. 
And hear this clearly, we will not win the day when it comes to sex. Talking about gender, sex. We will not win the day with arguments. Arguments will not win. We need a better story. We need a better experience. We need a better life. Arguments will not win. We've got to tell a better story. We must live a better story. So today, a biblical theology of sex and gender. This is a little bit of an unusual sermon for me. I've, as I said in my video on Friday, if you watched it, I have, in my study of this, I I've learned things that I didn't know before, and I've taught on sex multiple times. I've taught in, in Los Angeles. I taught to a room of, full of 200 people, of single people about sex. I've taught on sex in this congregation. But some of the stuff I've been reading and studying, I've never thought about before, okay? So this is a little bit of rough, this a little bit rough maybe today, a rough outline. It'll get better next time I preach this. But the thesis, again, is sex is a sign pointing to the love of God. I actually have no points today. I do have some application at the end, okay? Now, real quickly, before I jump in, why am I saying, talking about sex when the command is no adultery? Uh, the reason is this. In the Christian teaching on the Ten Commandments, there's always a, a positive to the negative. Uh, for instance, do not murder implies build a culture of life. Do not steal implies a culture of generosity. Do not covet implies learning contentment. And so today is the positive side of no adultery. And the positive side is passionate, erotic, committed sex between husbands and wives. And communities that value and celebrate celibacy and singleness as equally dignified callings for God's amazing plan for our bodies and for sex. To quote G.K. Chesterton, as I did last week, I am convinced that when it comes to sexuality in our body, Christianity creates a good order where good things can run wild. So, look with me at Genesis chapter 1. It's always good to have your Bible with you and to look at the printing verses, but you need to follow closely today. This is a Just follow closely. Uh, Okay, so Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. They are two complementary stories of the creation of the world. And both have sex in them. We'll talk about that. Now, understand that these stories are not necessarily designed to be photographic reproductions of what happened, though they may be. These stories in Genesis 1 and 2 are to talk about the who more than the how, the why more than the what. But to grasp the power and beauty of God's intention for sex in our bodies, you've got to first understand two things about God. Okay? The first thing you've got to understand about God is that God is love. God is love. Now, that seems easy enough. But love is a complicated world because we only have one word in English for it. I actually think C.S. Lewis's little book, The Four Loves, that talks about the four Greek words for love is helpful. Because all of the four loves that he talks about, and I'll tell you what they are in just a moment, all of the four loves that C.S. Lewis talks about are ways that we can understand, experience God. And there's four Greek words for love. One is storge. I'm using the Greek. That means basically compassion or affection. The second uh, love is philia, like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. This is the, the love of friendship. The third word is agape, which is self-giving love, self-giving love. And then the fourth is eros, eros, sexual love. And each of those four loves in its own way points to the love of God. You can see this with compassion of storge, affection. You can see this, of course, with brotherly love. Jesus is our older brother. We are brothers and sisters. We are friends. You can, of course, see this in agape, self-giving love. Jesus gives himself for us on the cross. But I want to suggest that 
also eros, erotic love, points to, and maybe even especially points to, the love of God. So point number one, God is love. Point number two, God is triune. What does that mean? God is a trinity, which means that God exists as one God in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And the Trinity reminds us that not only does God love us, but God loves himself. There is a community of persons within the Trinity that love each other. Father to Son, Son to Spirit, Spirit to Father. Within God, the three persons of the Trinity live as an eternal exchange of love. And the Trinity has always existed as this, an eternal exchange of love. And friends, God wants us to know and experience that love. So look with me. God is love. God is Trinity. Look with me. I know this is, stay with me. Verse 26, Genesis 1. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us make humans in our image. And the true essence of God is love. So he's saying, let us make humans to love like we do. Created to give ourselves to others and to God. Now, to reinforce my point, Jesus says the meaning of life is to love. John 15, verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. The meaning of life, according to Jesus, is to love like God. And so in the creation here, he says, you're made in my image to love like me. Now, you're like, well, there's no sex so far. Stay with me. Verse 26, I mean verse 27. Okay, so verse 26, we've seen the details. He said, let's do this. Verse 27, he gives the details. It says, read with me. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. At the creation, humans are made in the image of a triune God and three persons who is love. And the imaging of that God and his love is in two persons, a male and a female who are equal yet distinct, complements to one another, which is to say that male and female are a glorious revelation into what the triune God has forever enjoyed, the eternal exchange of love between persons who are distinct, male and female. It's analogous to the three persons of the Trinity. And what is the first command what is the first command God gives to these children? Verse 28, be fruitful and multiply. Translation, the first command to give to humans in all of Scripture, make love. Be fruitful and multiply. This is why I'm not going to talk about those verses in Song of Solomon. But in the heart of your Bibles, in the very center of your Bibles, is a poem about sexual love. It is erotic. It is explicit. Did you hear what I just said? I mean, like, those images that, like, are poetic that I just read a moment ago, they refer to what you think they refer to. Okay? They do. In the heart of your Bible is this erotic poem. Why? Because God created sex and it is good. Now, Genesis chapter 2 gets even more interesting. The complementary account. There's, there's basically Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. They're both different accounts of creation from different angles. Look with me at verses 18 to 20. The, Adam is in the Garden of Eden. Think about this. He has meaningful work. He has all the things you think you want. Meaningful work. He has beauty. He has plenty of everything. He even has a relationship with the living God. He walks with God. And yet verse 18 says, it is not good that he is alone. 
Verses 19 to 20 are how he names the animals and how none of the rest of the creation is suitable for him or helpful to him. So verse 21, God causes the man to fall asleep. And think about this. I'd never thought about this. Adam was created out of the dust and made into the image of God. But Eve, in verse 22, is created out of the image of man, okay? Adam's from the dust. Eve is from the image of God. It's, in some sense, like Eve is the perfection, the apex of creation. Robert Cunningham says it this way. This is why, I don't know if this is right or not, but he said, this is why women are so much more attractive than men. Men are made of dust, and women are made of the image of God. Stay with me. This woman is brought to the man. This woman is made out of man, and then she is the image of God, and then she is brought. And it results in the first poem in Scripture, the first Bible. It's almost as if Adam can't help himself. Verse 23, when he sees Eve for the first time, he's never seen a woman before. When he sees her, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He is fascinated by her body. And that includes arousal, but it is more than that. Because next to him, he's looking at a body that expresses a person that completes him. You see, by, his, by himself, his body does not make sense. By herself, Eve's body does not make sense. But everything in his life starts to make sense when he sees her body. Do you know this? There's only one part of your body that is incomplete. There's only one part of your body that is incomplete. There's only one part of your body that does not make sense by itself. Your genetic structure, every, everything has 46 chromosomes except what? The semum and the ovum, 23 each. Everything about you makes sense by itself except for one thing. But face to face with a man or a woman, it makes sense. Like the Trinity, a person distinct for you to love and enjoy. But not only does the body make sense, it also is his God-given way to understand his instinct to love and to not be alone. You see, Adam starts to understand what it means to be human. He starts to understand himself. It's almost like he didn't understand himself. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, I understand myself. He begins to understand love. He begins to understand who God is. And how does he intuit these things? By looking at his body and at hers. But it does not stop with looking and singing and understanding. Verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Which is to say that looking and praising and singing become touching. Become making love. Becoming one flesh. You friends, God has inscribed his calling to love as he loves in our bodies by creating us male and female and calling us to become one flesh. And that one flesh union results into my mind what is one of the high points in all of literature, certainly in all of the Bible, and it is the longing of every heart within the sound of my voice. This is the longing of your heart. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. Naked and unashamed. Friends, you were created to experience that. To be fully seen. To be fully known. To be fully loved. That's naked. And to be fully accepted. Unashamed. You were created to look upon the body of another in delight and rapture 
as a revelation of the love of God. And to experience that love is to experience something. To experience that love is to experience something of the external, the eternal exchange of the love that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are made in His image. And this is how He makes us. At Robert Huntingham again, he says, Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, but marital union making love declares in a special way the love of God. And let me just say this, that this line from Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, which happens to be the last verse before we enter Genesis 3 in the fall and the brokenness, Genesis 2, 25, naked and unashamed, that declares the gospel. That is what we have in the forgiveness that we have in Jesus, that we are fully known, all your brokenness, all your hurt, all your sexual sin, known, seen, and yet loved, forgiven, accepted. Your heart longs to be naked and unashamed. And sex is a pointer to what Jesus has done for us in giving us that naked, seen, known, loved, unashamed, forgiven. Why is sex so powerful? What is the subtler thing that Time Magazine is talking about? Sex is so powerful because it is a pointer to the very love of the God who made you. Richard Winter says this, Sexual orgasm is one of the most intense pleasures known to humans. It has the greatest potential of giving us a foretaste of heaven and the greatest potential for leading us to hell. And it's because sex points us to the love of God. It's because sex points us to the love of God. This is why Jesus is so merciful, so compassionate towards sexual sinners, especially women. In John chapter 4, he is especially tender with a woman who's been married five times and is living with another man. In John chapter 8, he's especially tender with a woman who has been caught in adultery. He is so tender because he knows that behind their disordered loves, they were looking for him. This is why God, sex points to the love of God. This is why at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, at the very end of history, when Jesus returns, how is it depicted? As Jesus, the bridegroom, coming to his bride. A wedding supper. The wedding supper of the Lamb. Because sex points to the love of God, this is why in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, printed for you, when the Apostle Paul is talking about husbands and wives, he writes, for this reason, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What reason, Paul? What is the reason? To reveal, to proclaim, to anticipate the love of God, the eternal union of Christ and his church. As he says, this mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. This reason. You see, because sex points to the love of God, this is actually, this is actually why Jesus says there will be no marriage, no sex in heaven. This is why. Because marital sexual love is God's gift in this life to point us to the reality that exists in the future that we will experience in heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. In this life, we have the sign inscribed in our bodies. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will have the reality. Eternal ecstasy, unrivaled rapture, bounteous, beautiful bliss. Which incidentally is why singleness and chastity are equal callings in, as marriage. They are just as equal. Chris West says it this way. Christian celibacy is not a rejection of sexuality. 
Christian celibacy points to the ultimate purpose, the meaning of sexuality. Celibacy is that understanding the Christian history is actually about going beyond the sign to the thing that is the the fullness of heaven. That's what it's about. Or to quote Pope John Paul II, celibacy is the witness among us. Celibacy is the witness among us that anticipates the resurrection. Okay. That's a lot of biblical theology. I do want to leave you with something. So I got four takeaways, actually three takeaways. This in many ways is my, my mind has been revolutionized studying for this. I got to be honest, I have, I have never thought in the ways I've thought about sex. And so you got kind of the first draft of it. It'll get better. But let me give you a couple of takeaways. I mean, I'm trying to imagine every person in this room. Let me address first single adults. Maybe you've never married. Maybe you are divorced. Maybe you are widowed. This is, I'm just speaking of you. The God-given desires, they of course can become lust. And that's true for all of us. They can become lust. And oftentimes you are told to do one of two things. You are told to take that sexual desire that may or may not become lust. You are told to either indulge it, just, just express it. Or sometimes in Christian churches, you are told to suppress it, to repress it. And I want to say there's a third option besides indulge or suppress. And that third option is to surrender your lust to Christ. Ask God to crucify your lust and to resurrect your sexual desires according to his plan. That is a slow process. It is a difficult process. It is a gradual process. It is progressive. I know something of that struggle personally. I was not married until I was 39 years old, almost 40 years old. But hear me say this, Christ never robs you of your humanity, and he never robs you of your sexuality. He wants you to have the fullness of your sexual desires, even if it means holding them in celibacy. Single adults. Let me say something to students, college students, mainly college, some older high school. And I'm going to let Chris and Kristen and Ian and Hannah deal with this. (laughs) Ask people out on dates. This is simple. you got the easiest time. Ask people and go on a date with them, okay? Treat the opposite sex as a person deserving your respect and your curiosity. And on that date, honor them with your body, okay? Real simple. Ask people on a date. Don't be like the people at Boston College. (laughs) And then to married folks, and especially maybe to parents. You have homework? Make love. Now... I know for some that there's physical limitations. I know that's not possible for every married couple. I also know that there are emotional and spiritual hurdles. You might not get there. You might not get there tonight. You might not get there. That's, I'm not, this is not easy. I'm not saying it is. And don't also, by the way, when you do this, don't treat the other as a mannequin for your own pleasure, like a sex doll. Treat your spouse as a person. I mean, the essence of the Trinity is self-giving love, not self-gratification. But actually, and let me say this to parents, there's so many parents who are worried about you know, all the confusion in the culture sexually and gender and all this stuff. One of the best things, one, not, this is not the silver bullet, but one of the best things you can do for your children is work on having a healthy sex life that you can talk to them about at the appropriate age. That's one of the best things that you can do. Have your own sex life be healthy. Make love. And for all of us, though, in closing, remember... The body, the flesh, is essential to the gospel. It is essential to salvation. You can say that the body or the flesh is the hinge of salvation. 
We believe in a God who is the creator of flesh. He created bodies. We believe in the word who was made flesh, Jesus. He was made a body in order to redeem bodies. We believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe in the resurrection of the flesh. And we believe one day in the fulfillment of both the creation of our bodies and the redemption of our bodies at the last day, the redemption of our bodies. So, glorify God in your body. In two weeks on March 12th, I'll come back. It'll be more practical. This is the biblical theology, but we will talk more practically and more, um, yeah, that's what we'll do. Amen. Let me pray for us. Great God, I guess my prayer is for our church, for our community, that we would bear witness with our sexual lives, whether we are married, whether we are single, wherever we're coming from, whether we are hurting deeply and there needs for redemption, for healing, for forgiveness, wherever we're coming from in our sexual lives, I pray that we would experience the gospel, that you became one of us, became, took flesh and blood, that you might redeem us, that you might give us this greater story to tell a watching world and so much need of this hope, this healing, the love of God in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.